31-34 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Let's pray. Hold on. Father, thank you for this new covenant and grace, Jesus Christ, sealed with his blood. God, thank you for allowing us to receive in your body what those who went before us didn't. God, I pray that as we see the beauty and the effect of the gospel this evening, that you will help us to see the beauty of the house that you've built and that we would cherish it all the more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I don't want to take all of my time to do this, but I do want to do this. I was driving in my truck one day. It had been a bad day. Truck wouldn't start that morning, and... Had to take my wife's car to take Ian to school. Had a blowout on the way. The spare tire was flat. Got back to the house. Tried to get in the church van to take Ian to school. Starter was dead. Didn't work. By 10 o'clock, finally on the road to get to the church. Just been a terrible, no good, bad day. Brother Randall calls on the road. <laughs> I was covered in grease. And uh, just wanted to tell me about opportunity he had to share the gospel with somebody. My truck was so messed up, it was sounding like this. Clock, 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 clock. And I didn't want him to know anything was wrong, so I just parked on the side of the road and answered the phone. And it made everything seem so small. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian walks into Interpreter's house. He doesn't even have a scroll yet. And he looks up on the wall and he sees a painting. And he asks the interpreter, who is that? He says, well, that's one in a thousand. He has the law and grace written on his lips the world behind his back, the best of books in his hands, and his eyes lifted up to heaven. And church, I know you, you know me. I've said it a hundred times, but I can't say it enough. Your pastor's one in a thousand. You cherish him. Because few men, few men called of God would stand 
and lead a church like he's led you, set aside a whole week so you can think on Christ. And you're a privileged people. And uh, Brother Randall, you're my best friend. Love you, brother. I love this church. It's easy to preach on the church in a place like this. It's been a great week. I love Easter week. It's always my one of my favorite weeks of the year. I don't get to sit and listen to preaching much. I'm going to come here and get to. We have made an ascent this week, and I don't know if you've made the connection over the years, but every week, an Easter week, it's an ascent. You start here and you just keep ascending. Power changes nations. His power changes nations. His power regenerates. His power is globally effective. His power creates a new man. His power delivers from slavery. You have seen the power of the gospel from different angles. Taking us to the depths of depravity and making us new and setting us apart from sin. The question is, now what? I mean, the last two nights we saw you're a new man in Christ. We, we, we saw that we're regenerate and we're saved from the bondage of slavery. We don't have to go back to Egypt. And yet we're in this weird time where we're waiting for the kingdom or we're waiting for something And we don't have a real purpose other than sanctification. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So now what? What about the church today? What about what now? We've been regenerate and we hate sin and we're growing in sanctification. But is that the the only lot in our life until Jesus returns? To simply look out the window and say, when? I hate this world and I just want to leave. Is is that it? (laughs) In the Old Testament, you have something promised. Think about Jeremiah. Context of Jeremiah. I love the book of Jeremiah. I love his context called by God, set apart. You knew me from my mother's womb, called to be a preacher of the gospel, comes to a point where he is so tired of preaching truth that he says, I'm done. These people hate me. I hate them. He pastored a Baptist church. (laughs) I'm done. And then he realizes, I can't be done. I can't every man called of God comes to that point in his life where he's done. He's done with the people. He's done with the message. And the true ones come to place and they say, I can't be done. This is going to consume me. Jeremiah comes to that. He's got an interesting message, Jeremiah. Flee to Babylon. It's the will of the Lord. God's against you because you didn't keep the Sabbath. Interesting. Chapter 17. Yeah, but the Sabbath isn't a big deal. God thought it was a big deal in the nation of Israel. They didn't keep the Sabbath, and so God comes against them. 
And you have a couple of chapters between 30 and 31. We can't cover all this, and I've got too much to cover this evening. I can't even get to it all, but I just want to say a few things. You, you come to this place of the depths of despair, and yet there's these gleams of hope. So if you look back at chapter 30 and verse 22, you have a pronouncement of judgment before this. And I'm just going to read a few verses. You shall be my people and I'll be your God. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth. Whirling tempest. It burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has executed and accomplished the intentions of His mind. In the latter days you will understand this. So Jeremiah preaching in the midst of a cantankerous people. A a people that are supposed to be the covenant community of God. And you have throughout the whole Old Testament these restraints on worship. I just want to show it to you like this. Moses is called up to the mountain to meet with God. And he sees something that no one else sees. And it makes his face so bright he's got to veil it. Then he comes down to the covenant community of God and he says, Aaron, what did you do? I just threw the gold in and out came this calf. And, and so now you have Moses trying to worship amongst this community, and he's like, I saw God yesterday, and now I'm supposed to worship with these people? Joshua, I'm going to choose this day who I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve the Lord. Oh yeah, we'll do that too. Don't say that. And so you, you have these men of God meeting with God and the, these personal relationships and intimacy and yet restrained in worship about, against this com- covenant community. And you have this coming to an absolute head with Jeremiah. God's done. He's given the, the nation of, of, Israel, uh, of Israel, he's given them a certificate of divorce, and he tells he's going to give it to Israel. I'm going to divorce you as well. That's why Jonah's mad and goes and preaches in Nineveh, because go preach to the Gentiles after you've been divorced. And now you have this judgment coming on the nation. And yet God says, when my wrath is satisfied, then you'll be my people and I'll be your God. When I've accomplished and executed this, you know what the people's response is to Jeremiah? We're not going to Babylon. We're going to call Egypt. And you remember the text from last night. You're working and plowing in Egypt and saying you're on your way to Canaan. Well, now these people are in Canaan saying, I'm really going to go back and plow in Egypt because that's a better plan. And then you have in verse 31 chapter 31, this absolute mourning. And then a promise. And I want you to see, starting verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, O nations, declare it in the coastlands, fall away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keep his flock. 
For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from his hands, too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, and over the young flock and the herd. Their life shall be like watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then the young women shall rejoice and dance, and the young men and the, the, uh, and the old shall be merry, and I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness and sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. I want to jump forward to years after this. Nehemiah and Ezra, they bring the people back. Zerubbabel builds the temple. The hope, he's going to turn our mourning into joy. After Babylon, now we're going to come back and our mourning's going to be joy. And all the old men see that foundation laid of the temple and they weep. So the question is, two, number one, what's the satisfaction of the wrath of God? When I execute this, then I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And two, how does this come about? Brings us to our text. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I want you to think about Jeremiah. One of my favorite parts of the whole book is when the leaders of Babylon come and they say, Jeremiah, we have a great plan for you. We've planned your retirement. You're going to come over to Babylon and live with the king. We've heard your prophecies. We like them. And we want you to come and we're gonna, you're going to live plentifully. And he says, nope. I'm going to stay with these people who beat me and mocked me. And I'm going to keep preaching. What would cause a man to do that? He has a promise. A new covenant I'm going to make with you, declares the Lord. He has a hope. Christ. All of his hope is set in Christ. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now he gives stipulation, or he gives a declaration. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Why a new covenant? Why is this necessary? You look at the nation of Israel like we talked about and Moses meets with God and God speaks to Moses as a man speaks to man face to face. And and you have Joshua going to conquer Jericho and he falls down with the man with the sword, takes his sandals off and worships. You have Hannah, as someone said, who had access to the anti-type and not the type. She goes to the throne of grace. But think about it. Hannah's praying in the temple. And you know what they said about her? 
get this woman out of here. She's drunk. That was the covenant community. That, that's how she, that was the hindrance in her worship. Is These people don't even get it. So I want to offer three things of the old covenant. And I hope we have time to get... I want to speak quickly about the Old Covenant, New Covenant, and then get to what this does. The book of Hebrews. So, three things that we see in the Old Covenant. The fault. He says here, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband. I want to read it from Hebrews. It's the same text, but from the Septuagint. Behold, the days are coming, chapter 8 of Hebrews, starting verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So my question is this, what is the fault with the Old Covenant? The text says in Hebrews, he finds fault with them. Because they didn't continue. This Old Covenant required things. But I want to show you in three areas where there is the nature of this covenant. Number one. It was synergistic in nature. It was a covenant between God and man. And God said, if I'll be your God and you'll be my people, I'll give you a land, I'll give you a kingdom, I'll give you a nation, and I'll bless you with my presence. If you do and continue. And so it was synergistic in nature. Therefore, the fault that God finds with them is with them. Romans 8, verse 3. For Christ did what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What did the law weakened by the flesh could not do? It couldn't fulfill the law. It was weak by the flesh. The people of Israel never remained faithful. Think about their greatest days. David and Solomon. Solomon's building the temple. He's building this glorious place all the while storing up for himself wives from other nations that leads to the destruction of the nation. The glory days, they don't even amount to glory. This covenant required that the nation continue in the works that God gave them to do. In circumcision, obedience to the law, specifically here in the book of Jeremiah, as regards the Sabbath, the regulations in worship, and this covenant required that the, the work of God and faithfulness and the work of man to continue. I'll be faithful to my covenant, but you must do. Samson's a great example of this. Samson, I want to use you to save the nation. You're going to take a Nazarite vow. You're going to do this. He never did. And God's patient with him, patient with him, patient with him. And finally God says, I'm done. Certificate of divorce. Read Ezekiel 36, and you got this harlot that God rose up and gave all these treasures to, and it says that she made her 
house on the street corner and didn't even charge. It's an analogy of the nation of Israel. Why? It was based on the work of man. You must do to continue. Number two. Now you're going to disagree with me on this, but hear me out and give me a chance. It was antinomian in nature. How? It was based on the law. God gave this to Moses in the law. He said, here is the law. How is it antinomian in nature? They had no regard for the law. These people lived as though they had no law. The text says they did not continue. This means they had absolutely no care for God's law. You did not keep the Sabbath. You're living like an antinomian. By the time we get to the New Testament, there's books upon books written about how to accommodate these laws for their own self. To use them for them. Jesus told them, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will the kingdom of heaven. Later on, a few verses later, he says, apart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The sign of this covenant was circumcision, but not of the heart. And it was revealed in their disregard for God's law. And number three, it was premillennial in nature. Now you're really going to say, how was that? Once again, hear me out. The promise was fourfold. I'll give you a land, I'll give you a nature, a nation, I'll give you a kingdom, and I'll give you a, a blessing of my presence. <laughs> Our text says, on the day that I took them out of the land of Egypt. From the time that God led them by the hand out of Egypt... They're looking for something else. We're looking for this. Looking for something greater. Solomon, like I said, in the height of the nation, building the temple, the people are still looking for a greater nation. Then you have the exile and coming back and the rebuilding of the temple. Jesus comes. And they're still looking for a greater glory. It's premillennial in nature. They never enjoyed it. They never enjoyed the fruits of the covenant. And this is due to the nature and promises of this covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people if you continue. That's what Hebrews 8.6 says. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much, as much more excellent than the old covenant that he mediates is better, for it was enacted on better promises. The nation of Israel was looking for a kingdom, but in their own understanding of the kingdom. Remember when Jesus feeds the 5,000? They want to take Jesus and go to Rome because they're looking for a, another type of kingdom. They were looking for a kingdom where they would have structure and honor and glory among men. And it's in the midst of the destruction of that kingdom at one point, Jeremiah is preaching. And he says, Behold, 
going to make a new covenant with you. Not like that one. I'm not going to make one based on you. I'm not going to make one where it depends on your perseverance. He says this in verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Quickly, I want to address the nature of this covenant. It's monergistic. God does it. God saves You know the text in Ezekiel, I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit upon you and cause you to walk according to my ways. Here in our text, I will put my laws in your heart. I will write them on your heart. I will be your God and I will forgive your iniquities. This is all of grace. Every bit of it. We see in this covenant Especially you see it in Ezekiel 36. I will do something but not for you but for my name. The nature of this covenant is I will buy a people for myself. I I will elect the people. I'll save them. I'll set them apart. I'll sanctify them. And I'll cause them to persevere because it's for me. We like that. We like election. We like predestination. Once you get past the shock and all of those, they're a comfort. God elected. It's Him. It's monergistic. We like this about the new covenant. I will, I will, I will. They didn't continue. The law weakened by the flesh could not do. But Christ did it. We like that. Here's the part we don't like. This covenant is not antinomian in nature. I will write my laws on their hearts. I am so sick of this new covenant theology. It's heresy. Straight up. The way that we express our love toward God. His law written on our heart. Paul, chapter chapter 7 of Romans. You want to define the law. How do we know he's talking about that law? If it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. Well, what did the law, what law is he talking about? The law says you shall not covet. You know exactly where that comes from. It's like singing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. You know the whole song. You shall not covet, you know all of them. It says here, he writes them on our heart. It says here, he puts them within us. The man who loves Christ delights in the law of God. His law is not burdensome. It's freeing. You know, the law is summed up. The law, love of God and love of neighbor. We express our love toward God in the first four and to our neighbor in the next six. Here, 
this covenant is not antinomian in nature. The Christian does not try to get away from God's command, but runs to them. And here's why. I will remove your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. Now, you need to understand that real quick. The heart of stone is a dead heart, and I'll give you a heart that's alive. So if I walk up and I kick a stone, it's not going to respond because it has no life. I'll give you a heart of flesh, and it says, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk according to my ways. The definition of that is the law. So you have this covenant community that's saved monergistically by God, and it has the laws of God on their heart. And then thirdly, it's millennial in nature. It is among us. Look at verse 33 and 34. 33b. I will be their God. And they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Two things, and I'm just going to get on a soapbox for a minute. We don't have time to get in this, and we're not fighting that battle. Number one, in this covenant, everyone knows the Lord. The Pado baptist brothers are wrong. In this covenant, everyone knows the Lord. You don't need anyone to tell you, know the Lord, because you know Him. No one is in this covenant apart from predestination, election, regeneration, calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. You, you cannot have an eschatology that hopes for a futuristic kingdom and declare the worth of Christ now for the kingdom. So I want to show you this. Here it says, in the midst of this Jeremiah, this promise, I'm going to make a new covenant, not like this one, because look, look what they've done to it. They've ransacked everything. They've made it a mess, and in the midst of their stupor, they're still running to Egypt. I'm tired of them. But in this new covenant, monergistic, I'll write my laws on their heart, they cannot leave. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. So hear me out. My task this evening, His power unites. So the first question I want to ask this evening, maybe the last question, what do we have that they didn't have? Now bear with me as we turn to Hebrews. I'm going to try to do this quickly. Chapter 1, Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power after making purifications for sins. That's the seal of this new covenant. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So I want you to see it. Jesus comes in time and space. Now you need to understand this. Romans chapter 3. God passed over former sins. You're not going to get it unless you understand this. You have to understand three things. You have to understand soteriology, ecclesiology, and eschatology for this to make sense. Number one, 
he passed over former sins. What does that mean? Satan is accusing God, you can't save Abraham. He's a liar. Satan's accusing, you can't save David. He's an adulterer and a murderer. And God says, wait. He passed over. And in time, he puts his son forward as a propitiation. That he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith, Abraham. This is chapter 3, chapter 4 is coming. The faith of Abraham. So he's the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Revelation chapter 12. Don't go there, I'm just going to use it. The dragon comes out and is coming after her. Coming after the woman. The baby. Chapter 12, I think it's verse 12. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. He no longer is the accuser. He no longer accuses day and night. He's got no accusation. The accusation came because God saves Moses and Abraham and David and Hannah and Rahab and Nineveh. How can you save them? Because he made purification for sin. In time and space. And then he sits down. And he's seated Chapter 2, verse 8, the second part. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At the present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Everything is given to Christ. He sits and he rules and he reigns. So the question is, what is left outside of his control? The text emphatically says there's nothing Not one thing. He sits and he rules and he reigns. We look out the window and we say, hey bro, I'm not seeing it. (laughs) This whole COVID thing, 2020 happened. And that's what the text says. You don't see it. But we come in here where there's no windows. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus Christ. And we see him and our hope fills with joy. And, and we've come in here tonight and the strong man is bound and we've plundered the house of Satan. We've gone in and taken what is the Lord's. I remember Conrad Mabewe preaching some of the best sermons I ever heard, Romans 1, Christian imperialism. Take the gospel and conquer the world. And he wasn't talking about gaining governments and nations. He was talking about what's going on in North Korea. You don't see it, but they see Jesus. We're to know he sits and he rules and he reigns. Over what? Chapter 3. Verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of the house has come has, has more honor than a house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. What is the house? I don't even have to ask. You know. The house is the church. Now, this is an interesting word, counted. It's in the perfect tense. Not will be counted. He's counted. Jesus has built a house. Moses helped build a house. But Jesus built a house. And his is better. 
Therefore, he's worthy of more honor. So you got this new covenant I'm going to make with you. I'm going to redeem you monergistically. I'm going to write my laws on your hearts. I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. And I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. You're my house. Ephesians chapter 1, he seated all things under him and he rules through his body, the church. The house. If you go on, chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he made is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Christ has obtained a ministry that's better. What is the ministry? The church. The body of Christ. The house that he built. We continue. Chapter 11. You know the text. All these great men of faith. Verse 39. All these, though commended through their faith, it's all these listed in this chapter. That's Abraham seeing and looking for a city that his founder and builder is God. Abraham seeing the day of Christ rejoicing. Moses consider the reproach of Christ a far greater worth than all the treasures in Egypt. For by faith he left Egypt, it says, verse 27, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured seeing him who's invisible. We see Moses has this relationship. He has access to the throne. But then verse 39. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What is that? The house. Moses helped build a house. He was part of the building of a house, but... Now Christ has built the house. And he's worthy of more honor and glory. We've received it. So we're between these two points. My regeneration, the day he comes back. Is it just a time of limbo? A time where we do nothing? No, it's a time where we gather with the saints. Sing the glories of his name Worship him and plunder the house of Satan and enjoy the kingdom of God. One more, chapter 12, verse 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You have received it, it's yours. And thus, let us offer to God. Worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You, you've been brought out of that. He points back to that covenant. You remember the day when the covenant is sealed with the sacrifice, and Moses and Aaron are there, and wow, the presence of God comes, and they fall on their faces before him. And the very next day, the sons of Aaron, man, that was cool. We ought to do that again. And God kills them. And you have this reminder to the church. Church, you've been given something. You have it. 
They saw it in types and shadows. Moses goes before the priest. He doesn't even get to go in. He watches Aaron make the sacrifice, and he stands back having seen the invisible and saying, I can't wait. I can't wait. The text in Hebrews says, you come in here with confidence to receive help in the time of need. Grace for the time of need. Because you've received it. Church, there is no greater gift in the world than our head and placing us in this body. You, it doesn't get any better. And Christ reigning and ruling and the world going crazy and it's like, I don't, I don't care. It doesn't matter. You know, this new strain of COVID, this, another iPhone, I don't care. We only live to survive this world because my life is hid with Christ on high. I want to close with this. I'm reading a book right now. I just finished. I, I was devastated to know Pilgrim's Progress wasn't original based on another allegory. I'm reading this allegory, and there's this guy named Deception. He gives Pilgrim these glasses, and to make him see things better, right? But he realizes it's Deception, so he kind of wears it on his nose to look over the top of him. And he takes him to show him the business of the world. And you have all these people, and they're doing two things. They're playing children's games, and they're really intense about these children's games, these grown-ups. And they get so mad that when one loses, he kills the one that beats him. And the whole world is just playing these children's games, just going mad. And then he sees the other ones, and they're working in a trash dump. And they're picking up this trash here, and they're collecting it, and they're moving it over here and giving it to these people. And then these people are going over here and they're picking up this trash and they're going and they're giving it over here to these people. And when one tries to pick up a piece of trash and this other one beats him to it, they fight till one of them dies. That's the world we live in. That's what the world's doing. When you go to work tomorrow, you're just moving somebody's trash. That's it. You live in this secular world and all you're doing is just picking up trash from here and moving it over here. Then what of life? You've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It can't be taken from you because it's monergistic. You have the assurance of it because of the law written in your heart. And you have the hope of glory because he remembers your sins no more. Because he always looks on the scars of Christ. So what's your response? What are you going to do? You've been given an unshakable kingdom. You worship with reverence and awe. Because he's worth it. Stop dabbling in the trash fields of this world. Realize I only work to survive but my life is hid with Christ on high. Amen.